Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. Light the candles, put the champagne on ice and press play on some mood music because in honour of Valentine's Day, we're going to be talking to three authors about that little thing called love in all its various wonderful, tragic and deceptive forms. We'll explore why lying might be the key to a successful love life, we'll be telling love stories in reverse and we'll probably get a little bit soppy. We just can't help ourselves. But first, I'm joined by Nikki Cloak, whose novel Lay Me Down looks at the unspoken reality of a Golden Gate ironworker's job and how that inspired her love story. She joins me in the studio now. And first, a reading. In the bobbing crowd, they are an island. She talks and he listens. He nods and laughs in all the right places. There is a dimple in his left cheek when he laughs. It catches Elsa off guard. When he talks, she watches, sipping wine and smiling. There is a roughness to his voice which travels through her in waves, drawing her closer. Time edges on, and as it does, they talk and they laugh. Tentatively, they touch. Elsa's eyes meet Jack's, and a sense of daring overtakes her. Happy New Year, she says, and then she leans up and kisses him. Thank you so much, Nikki. Now, you've just told us the moment there where this couple sort of get together really that's the beginning of their love story and I suppose what always happens then is there's a sort of happily ever after story but this is where your story starts (laughs) exactly it's the beginning point it's kind of the midpoint really I guess because from there we go backwards and forwards with them to see what kind of brought them there and where they go from that point so tell us a bit about who they are and what and what happens to them so Elsa is um she's 27 she's English girl She's kind of a bit lost, really, I think. She's kind of come out of university with big dreams and, for various reasons, hasn't fulfilled them. And Jack is a little bit older. He's 36. He's half American, half English. Um, He's an iron worker. So he's been in the UK for about three years working on a construction project. Um, But his dream is to work on the Golden Gate Bridge. And after about six months of knowing Elsa, he actually gets that job offer. And off they go together on a kind of of spur-of-the-moment thing which probably is a bit ill-advised and kind of really forces their relationship into a different place. So they relocate to San Francisco. They do. And Jack takes up this extraordinary job. This dream job of his, yeah. And of course that then takes you into the world of of the people who work on these bridges and the iron workers. Just tell us a bit about that and how that plays its part in the book. Well, I think the problem is Jack has this big dream about it and he hasn't really thought about the kind of other side of it, which is that the iron workers have um, a kind of secondary voluntary role, which is to help try and prevent suicides on the bridge, which is a huge thing. You know, there's kind of at least one jumper every week. And it really takes a huge toll on Jack that he hasn't foreseen. And then in its way, it takes a huge toll on Elsa, kind of by proxy. So it really kind of unravels this kind of golden life that he's imagined for them. And so then, of course, what you do is sort of get interested in, in that side of the story, don't you? Just tell me about how that sort of came to you in real life, as it were. You sit down and you think, well, I might write a love story. I'd quite like to write about, about two people falling in love and their relationship. How did it then come to the Golden Gate Bridge in it San Francisco? It actually worked the other way around. So I, um, I saw a thing on Facebook, an article about the ironworks of Golden Gate. This was about halfway through the first draft of my first novel. And um, I was instantly taken with the idea. I thought it was so interesting that you have these kind of very traditional masculine men doing this construction job who then have this really sensitive other role. 
um, this kind of counselling role, really. And so I really wanted to write about that and, you know, sort of had it as a kind of carrot, I guess, like finish this novel and you can start that one. And when it came to it, I had an idea of who Jack was and I knew that his partner would be involved and it would affect them both in different ways. But Jack and Elsa sort of came after that. I kind of found them a bit later, I think. So the main point was this... Was this was the job, Was yeah. the job. So tell us a bit about how you, you went into sort of doing the research and finding out more about it and how it became then a, a fictional part of a story. So I did try to write it without going there first to try and find out about the two main characters. Um, and it worked OK. But in the end, I just went to San Francisco for five weeks, worked in a backpackers hostel and got in touch with the iron workers who actually work in on the bridge and went to their kind of union with my notebook in the middle of nowhere just outside San Francisco and asked them loads of questions and got to know them spent pretty much every day of five weeks walking to the bridge walking around the city standing on the bridge for hours I'm surprised no one tried to stop me from jumping to be mm. honest because I must have looked so suspicious hanging out there and had um, they were they surprised I mean did, does this happen to them all the time no. people saying can I come and talk to you about your job were you one of the, the first people to ever do that do I think, think so because and it's, there's quite a good reason for it the kind of publicity office at the bridge aren't that keen for this kind of secondary role to be really known about because I think it kind of they worry about suicide tourism and encouraging that to be in the media. So, no, there's a few interviews around on the internet. Obviously, I'd seen one. And, yeah, they don't talk about it very much, which I think is a real shame because it's such a kind of heroic thing to do, really, to kind of commit your life to helping other people in your spare time is amazing. So what then happened in terms of actually kind of finding a story and putting it into this book? Tell us a little bit about the other part of, uh, part of the book. I knew that they both had a backstory that would come out and I kind of wanted the book to be in three sections about three particular jumpers that Jack comes across and interacts with and how each of those affects him and brings out a bit more of his past. So I sort of set about thinking about about that. At the time, I was in a not particularly happy relationship, so I think that certainly found its way into their story and various ways. Elsa is a little bit more like me than other characters I've written in the past. I think she definitely has more qualities of mine. And I I think it just came over time, really, over drafts. I sort of realised why they were the way they were and how that was going to affect them going forwards. And yeah, just a kind of trial and everything, I really... And tell us a little bit about your journey into writing. You mentioned this is your second book, isn't it? You've written another novel (laughs) before this. How did you, you start to write? I think... Deep down, I've always wanted to write, but there was a long section where I thought I wanted to be an editor. So I went into publishing after uni and very quickly realised that I didn't like editing. (laughs) I didn't like seeing behind the magic, I suppose. Like, I liked the creation of it and the kind of imagination. Um, So I started writing secretly while I was at work. And Do you mean literally you started actually writing bits of your books while you were at work? Sometimes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, luckily, I had lots of supportive people around me at work who, as I started to confess and confide in them, were really helpful. And the kind of great thing about being in publishing is you're around books all the time. So there's so much to inspire you and to kind of spur you on. And I met my agent because she submitted a book to the publishing house I worked for and I loved it and therefore knew that we had very similar tastes and that I should get in touch with her first. So that's how that kind of happened. 
But it's very tough, isn't it, you know, working and writing at the same time? Yes, although I think it does make you work harder. So I, after the first book came out, I took a year out, which is when I went to research this one. And I was definitely lazier when I had all the time in the world to write. It was easier when you sort of have that two hours. And tell us, are you working on a on a third novel now? I know you still work in publishing. I am. So I've just sold a YA novel under a pseudonym because... I don't know. <laughs> just a, so just a different part of your writing totally life. Totally different writing life. And I'm working on a third adult novel now, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming in and telling us about Lay Me Down. Thanks for having me. We're covering lots of different kinds of love in this episode and Valentine's Day just wouldn't be the same without a big dollop of soppiness. Proving that true love isn't always about big romantic gestures, graphic novel Soppy by artist Philippa Rice is a heartwarming celebration of all those funny, sweet moments that light up the day-to-day reality of being in a relationship. Whether it's sympathising when your partner's tea has gone cold or offering to share the duvet while watching TV, it's the little things that count. It's based on Philippa's own relationship with her partner Luke, also an illustrator with whom she lives in Nottingham. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Philippa Rice, who uh, is soppy. Are you soppy? <laughs> Philippa, that's the title of your first book of, uh, of cartoons, um, comics, strips. What would you, how would you describe them? Um, well, certainly comics, but also lots of illustrations as well. And tell me about its soppiness. Um, well, it's a real story or lots of real moments from my life living with Luke Pearson, who's my boyfriend, and he uh, he's a comic artist as well. So Soppy is sort of just a general summary of what it's what it's like, you know, just a bit sentimental, but you know, I know it is, so that's why it's called Soppy. So this is the story of it's a boy meets girl story, isn't it? Yeah. And it's about well, as you said, you and your boyfriend meeting, moving in together, and it's a sort of record of your domestic life in a way. Yeah. And that, I mean, I suppose that sort of makes it sound like, oh, it's maybe quite a boring story, like this happens to lots of people, but it's, that's sort of the point of it. Like, it's not a really dramatic tale, it's quite normal, but it's sort of trying to highlight little things that we might easily miss or not really remember, but are meaningful. I guess there are also things that we sort of take for granted might take for granted like I don't know watching the tv with somebody playing a game with somebody arguing over the washing up or whatever they're just those sort of rather kind of tender domestic moments yeah I hope so (laughs) now I must say having said arguing over the washing up I did read it thinking when are they going to have a huge row (laughs) and you never really do do you no I put a few bits where we're cross with each other um but I didn't really put any actual proper arguments um except little, not so much squabbles, but, you know, little things about who's going to make the tea or something. But I didn't put any actual arguments because there's actually, there's nothing in there that's really very personal. I suppose I didn't want anyone to read it and think like, well, I, you know, that's got nothing to do with anyone else, you know, because actually when, I think when you have a, a real argument, it is usually something that it's personal, you know, it's not like relatable anymore. But the idea of having an argument is, is really normal. So I've definitely put some in, where like we are upset with each other but not too many how did you feel and where did the sort of idea come from to basically kind of as you say you take out the really personal moments like you know maybe having an argument or something like that um but where did it come from to draw on your own life when I first started doing it it wasn't 
really for everyone else to read. It was just for me. And well, for a long time, I had diary comics in my sketchbook where I would just write things down so I could remember them. You know, just all sorts of things like what I did in the day, even if it was boring, um, just so that I wouldn't forget like where my time has gone. And then I started drawing prettier ones with uh, red and black inks and they were really to show Luke just you know we always draw pictures for each other yes we should um, say they're very kind of striking they are this <laughs> this this kind of blocks of red and black color yes I, I drew a few of those and then I when I was sharing those online they were really popular and I did more and more really and I used the diary comics when I made the longer book version um, I was using those to bring back all the memories to to write all the stuff so it's all just real stuff from my diaries so that's interesting. You often trial or share your, your material online before it gets to a sort of further stage. Well, when I first started doing them, I, I wasn't thinking, well, this is going to be a book, so we'll see how it goes down. It, it was more like, well, I've got all these drawings that I've done for Luke and I do like them, so I'm going to put them on, on Tumblr. And I didn't expect them to be as popular as they got because a lot of the other work that I do, it doesn't really look the same, so I didn't know what the reaction would be, but lots of people seem to share it because they relate to it as well, which I didn't think would happen. You do do lots of other kinds of work in lots of different mediums, don't you? Just tell us a bit about some of the other things Um, that you do. Well, the first comic that I did, and I'm still doing now, is My Cardboard Life, and that's comic strips that are all made out of cardboard and paper, like collage and other different materials and things. And I started that about six years ago so that's been my main thing really and also do lots of craft crochet uh, making 3d models and things and I make little animations uh, animated gifs and I have a youtube channel just lots of different sort of branching out into different like creative things really crochet is hard isn't it though it's hard at first I recommend it It's, it's like a steep learning curve but when you get there you can really make anything at all can you just tell me a little bit about your route into this kind of work, how you sort of found your, your way into, into comic and graphic artwork? Well, I did animation at university, and after I graduated that, well, I wanted to do my own things. So comics, well, for me, it seemed like I could still tell a story or a joke that I could have made an animation of, but actually I can do, I can do it like without spending you know, weeks and weeks on like a minute. So that's that's how I ended up doing comics as a sort of uh, like a doable version of animation. But I mean, obviously, they're really quite different. But that's how I got into comics before that I hadn't made a comic before. And obviously, you know, to state a very, very obvious point, you have to be good at drawing. So you had <laughs> clearly that had been something you'd done from a, from a yeah. younger age. I don't know if you have to be good at drawing. Like, I think you can still use some make visual imagery without necessarily having a great drawing skill. If you if you'd written a short story and you you felt like you had to have some visuals, I don't think you'd have to be a great drawer to do it. With collage even you don't have to necessarily draw well at all. Like a lot of my comics that I make, it'll just be like bits ripped out with a you know, dot eyes and a little mouth, so would it but, be better um, then to say you have to have a sort of visual sense, a, vid- a visual yeah, imagination? I think, yeah, I think so. I always like drawing. Like I don't feel like I can draw that well, but like I, yeah, I've always been drawing um, lots since I was little. Now I have to ask you what Luke thought of it, what yeah. he's made of, made of the book, because it's obviously uh, revealing to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, it's a very sort of. Um, 
affectionate look at your domestic life and nobody I think would think it was a sort of you know blow by blow account of day to day life but nonetheless it has his life in it doesn't it yeah uh, he likes it which is good because <laughs> if he didn't well I just it would be a book but yeah luckily he does he does really like them and I had to make special effort to make sure they were all completely true because if anything was in there and it was, you know, inaccurate, I just put something in there that we would never do or something like he would be the first one to be like, no, that didn't happen. They had to be completely true. And I think that's made it better, really. Oh, in which case I'm never going to get into an argument about with you about who makes the tea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because people are pretty good at winning those arguments. Yeah, <laughs> it was very easy to get Luke to make tea for me. <laughs> Philippa, thanks so much for, for joining us today. And thank, thank you. you very much for cheering our hearts up with Soppy. From Soppy Love to its darker recesses now, as philosophy professor Clancy Martin, divorced twice and married three times, talks to his editor Stuart Williams about his new book, Love and Lies, and why you can't have one without the other. Clancy, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, we're going to talk a bit about your new book, Love and Lies, um, and that's about lying to children, parents, husbands, wives, and why, surprisingly, that can be a, a good and natural thing. Why don't we start at the start um, about how really young children learn to deceive it's one of the interesting things because um, it might be counterintuitive to contemporary audience, but up until very recent history, it was thought by psychologists, by almost everyone who um, worked on not just uh, deception but also on child psychology, that um, children actually didn't understand communication well enough to know how to lie until about age four. That, and that was the dogma until the 80s or 90s. And then um, I think probably because uh, at around that time, um, a lot more women started getting into um, academic psychology, this dogma was challenged. It turns out several interesting things. First of all, children learn to lie not as was commonly thought from outside influences, but children, without exception really, learn to lie from their parents and almost entirely from their parents. That was a big surprising discovery to many people, which again ought to be intuitive, I think, but um, was considered revolutionary when it was first noticed by psych and consistently observed by psychologists. Second, children deceive even before they learn to speak. And as soon as they learn to speak, they start lying. I mean, as soon as they can um, communicate with language, they begin lying. Another interesting thing is that the tendency of a child to lie and a child's proficiency at lying is a reliable indicator of that child's um, subsequent intelligence and also their subsequent uh, success in life. So if you're – I tell friends who talk to me about this um, – often friends who are worried because they have a child who is a little liar, that they should be reassured. That this probably means their kid is smart. It probably means that they are observant of their own child. And it actually probably also means that um, with a little bit of education about um, when deception is appropriate and inappropriate, uh, it will actually help their child succeed later in life that they're proficient as a liar. 
so fast forward then you've got children learning to lie and adults lying sometimes to them often to each other you say on page two of this book that in talking about love we lie with every breath we take that's an amazingly bold starting point tell us a bit about why the more i've thought about this issue over the past five or six years as a as an academic as a philosopher and also in watching my own children grow up and thinking about i'm on my third marriage now hopefully my last i i think that we have a tendency to use language most adroitly when the goods which we are protecting, acquiring, seeking, are the most important goods. So consequently, you'll find that people are um, very good at lying when it comes to money because they care a lot about money. They're very good at lying when it comes to their self-image because um, we care an awful lot about our self-image. They're very good at lying when it comes to um, ordinary social politeness because we care so much about social interaction. But what do we care about more than anything else? In my opinion, love. It's the single most sought after, most cherished, most precious uh, human good. And consequently... This is when we get, um, because as human beings, how do we really acquire the things? How do we protect the things that we care about most? We really do it chiefly through language. You know, we don't go about with clubs anymore happily most of the time, hitting each other on the head to get the things we want. We do it just simply by talking with one another. And this is why when it comes to love, we do so much lying. It's, because it's when we deploy every every verbal skill that we have in our repertoire. And sometimes that means uh, genuine candor. Sometimes it means false candor. But it, it means all different, any kind of technique, verbal technique we have acquired over the years, we will use to protect our love, to gather love, um, and to uh, guarantee love. But the thing that seems to me a, the great leap forward that you make in this is that you say that's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily a problem. In fact, maybe the best relationships are founded on some level of deception. You make um, the crucial philosophical distinction because simply because uh, uh, it is the case that we do something doesn't mean that we ought to do something, right? Um, there are lots of things that we do that we would say, yes, but we'd be better off if we didn't do that, you know. I used to be quite a drinker, and then I eventually realized, no, I'm better off not being a drinker. All sorts of things that we do that we're better off not doing. So why might that not be the case when it comes to deception? That, okay, yes, it's true that we lie when we love. Uh, when we love, we lie. But we'd be better off if we were telling the truth. The claim I'm making, you're quite right, is that in many circumstances, it's not merely that we do lie, but that we ought to lie. Okay, why might that be the case? The simplest example, I think of a conversation I was having with my wife this morning. And she, uh, she's an editor for Vice magazine. 
And while here in London, she was talking about um, the other editors about going out to get uh, to write a story about getting the most expensive haircut in London. She's always had this very long, beautiful brown hair, and she's thinking of dyeing it blonde and getting like this short little bob. So she asked me, what do you think about this idea? Should I go do this? And I said, well, there's nothing I love more than your natural hair. Completely truthful claim. It's also all I know. You know, it's the only thing I've ever seen on her is her is her long or beautiful long brown hair. But another truthful claim. Um, I think it might be fun for you to go make a change. Ugh. Boy, if I had only told a lie, I would have been much, much better off. <laughs> because then it began this 45-minute conversation about how I hadn't given her any concrete information whatsoever. And uh, she said, well, then I'm just going to shut the story down because you've said you love my long, blonde hair, my long brown hair. And why would I do something differently? And if I had just told a, a simple lie in this circumstance, um, the lie that, you know, I think it's a great time. We're here in London. Have some fun. It sounds like a cool story. Make a change. I'd love to see you. This would have been a lie. So I'd love a, to see a, you with a different hair a color. Great example of the useful, the useful evasion, the useful lie. What's the right balance? You you write. You talk about the greatest threat to enduring love being absolute truthfulness. Absolute lies wouldn't work either. So, where do we situate that balance? I think that is the most important question when it comes to cultivating long-term romantic relationships, perhaps. Um, And this is how I think it works. I think what you have to do is um, focus first on the goal, which basically is care, right? Love or care. Um, the creation, the collaborative, cooperative creation of um, this good which you both desire, which is to care for one another, um, to cultivate this erotic intimacy. But because we have these incredibly complex personalities, which we ourselves don't understand. I was in Taipei recently listening to a great Buddhist lama talk about emotion and he was saying how even the most perceptive psychologists will identify 50, maybe 100 different emotions. But in fact, we have thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of different emotions running um, through our heads at any given moment. And we only become aware of these emotions insofar as particular situations, circumstances, and people call them to our attention. Our self-knowledge is so limited, so um, to find the balance between truthfulness and deception, between respecting another person's limits uh, of their self-awareness and um, the degree to which they're willing to expose that, and also the respecting your own limits, it has to be an ongoing project. I mean, Adrian Rich is the poet and philosopher, essayist, Adrian Rich. She's very good about this. She says... It's not that I ever expect you to be completely transparent with me, but it's that 
I hope you will reach gropingly, slowly, tentatively towards the truth with me so that we can slowly but surely come closer together. And I think that's what we need. Um, a good example that a mentor of mine used to use of this is if you think about the question, what are you thinking right now? Ah, one of the most dangerous questions there is and a perfect illustration of why we have to lie to the people we love. Because if at any time your lover asked you, what are you thinking right now? And you always only told the truth. You wouldn't be in that relationship for very long. And we all know that, right? I don't even ask the question. I just, I just, because I feel like it's, it's like the broken cookie jar question. When a mom catches a kid standing there with a cookie in her hand and a broken cookie jar beside her and says, well, who broke the cookie jar? I'm like, come on, that's just an invitation to lie. I feel like, what are you thinking? It works just the same way. It's like demanding that the, the other person lie but people do ask this question and it's a fair question and sometimes you can just tell the truth but I think it one of the reasons that intimacy between two people is so precious is so much fun really is a better way of putting it is that you are slowly discovering the limitations of kind of how truthful you can be when you can be truthful when you have to tell a polite lie and when you maybe have to sometimes tell a downright lie you know particularly perhaps when it comes to sex so can you boil it all down um it's asking the impossible but the ultimate aim of this book i think where it ends up is long-term love often within marriage be an agony uncle give some advice to people setting out on a journey like that here's the biggest favor you can do for yourself if you want to cultivate long-term romantic relationship with someone don't expect absolute truth don't expect absolute transparency be willing to forgive um, little lies in someone else. Come to expect little lies in someone else just as you forgive and expect those little lies from yourself. Maybe be honest with that other person that, hey, if you ha find yourself in a situation where you have to engage in some deception, maybe even for a little while you have to engage in some deception, and yet you feel like you are still taking care of us, nourishing us, protecting us, that's okay with me. I understand that you may find, and I may find myself in that situation too. But when you feel like a deception or a lie is now starting to threaten the love we have for each other, have the courage to bring this up with me. And I will um, try to remember that I've done the same thing to you. Try to be understanding. Try to be thoughtful. Try to be forgiving. Um, for me, we have to remember two things. You can't demand truthfulness from other people, but that also means that you have to demand forgiveness from yourself, the ability to forgive someone else. So um, put caring first. Make caring paramount. And then truth, recognize that it's a, it's a much, it's further down the scale of goods. Fantastic. Clancy, thanks ever so much. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Books podcast and thanks to all my guests this month. We hope you have a great Valentine's Day, however you're spending it. And personally, I think it's a great opportunity to spend some quality time with your favourite book. 
If you've missed any episodes of the Vintage Podcast or would like to listen to them again, you can find all our episodes on our website www.vintage-books.co.uk and you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love to know what you think, so if you have two minutes, please give us a rating or leave a comment. Until next time, goodbye.